In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, and we're actually going to be finishing one of the longer sections in the book of Mark. And it is an interesting section because it ends the way it began. Sometimes we call this bookending a passage of Scripture. Or a a more literary term is inclusio, where you include with brackets a section that is similar. And Mark has done that for us by bookending this rather long section with almost the same miracle. I don't need to mention to you the name Helen Keller as far as introducing someone to you that you don't know. Famous as a lecturer, famous as an activist, a woman who did amazing things in her life being both blind and deaf. But one of my favorite quotes from Helen Keller is the one you see on the screen where she says, in in answer to someone who said to her, isn't it terrible to be blind? And she said, it's better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see absolutely nothing. And that quote is so appropriate for what we're going to study this morning in Mark chapter 10. Helen Keller also said, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. And although there are some amazing and beautiful things that we can see and feel and sense and taste, to know God from our heart is the greatest thing of all. We begin reading with verse 46. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus by name, which simply means the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside begging. If you remember our map that follows the journey of Jesus from the high point of Caesarea Philippi, uh, where he was declared to be the Messiah, and where he first told his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer, then going down to Capernaum, the hometown, adopted hometown of Jesus, into the land of Samaria, And then ultimately across uh, the Jordan over to the land of Perea. And then from the land of Perea, we go straight west to the very first city you find once you cross the Jericho. And that happens to be the city, uh, happens to be the city of palms, the city of roses, Jericho. That's a helpful map, isn't it? There we go. So the red line shows us where we've been, and the blue line shows us where we're going today. Back across the river, back into what we think of today as the land of Israel, but the land of Israel had a much larger population at that time. And uh, here is Jesus now coming to Jericho. It's interesting that this story is found in three of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, sometimes called the synoptic gospels because they have a similar view. However, in two of the Gospels, it says he's leaving the city, 
And in another gospel, it says he's entering the city when the same story takes place. And the critic says, aha, another place where the Bible is wrong. Well, my friend, just do a little more studying. I think the best answer to this is that there are two Jerichos. There's an Old Testament Jericho that was destroyed. Remember this story? When they marched around the walls and blew the trumpets. And that was still in ruins. But the New Testament Jericho was about a mile to the south. And sometimes they were connected, but sometimes thought of as different places, still called Jericho. So it's very easy for one writer to think of Jesus entering the new city or leaving the old city when it's exactly the same story without contradiction. It always amazes me the deeper you go into the scriptures, the more the scriptures are validated and supported and found to be trustworthy. Well, here's a picture of Jericho, and this particular picture uh, is kind of looking toward the west. So this is the territory that they're actually going to be traveling in from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's only about 15 miles, maybe a little bit more, but it's all uphill. The elevation of Jerusalem is like 3,300 feet, and the elevation of Jericho, I think, is below sea level. Of course, the Dead Sea is the lowest place in the face of the earth. So even though it's not a long journey and could be done in a day, it's all uphill and treacherous, dangerous, because of the robbers who would hide in the cliffs and the rocks. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan who came to the aid of someone who was beaten on this very road? And so it's a dangerous road that they're heading into. Jericho was rebuilt by Herod the Great, and so it became a beautiful city. The next view is one that actually looks toward the east and uh, across the Dead Sea, across the Jordan River into what is today the jo- uh, Jordan, the land of Jordan. And it's in this uh, city, it's called the City of Roses or the City of Palms because palm trees are found to be everywhere. Think of uh, maybe Palm Springs or a nice warm climate, dry climate. This became the palace for Herod after he beautified the place, his winter palace, because the climate was so beautiful. And it was also the place where everyone coming from the north would gather before they would enter into the city of Jerusalem, that is the Jews, because they wouldn't pass through the land of Samaria. So they'd come down the Jordan River, Rift Valley, and then come into the city of Jericho. And by the way, the city was filled with excitement because this is the time of Passover festival. So what you have in the city is this influx of thousands of pilgrims on their way to the city of Jerusalem. Added to it, many of the priests who served in the temple in Jerusalem, who weren't on duty, lived in Jericho because it wasn't too far to travel. But during the Passover feast, many of them would be engaged, so there were thousands of extra priests in the city, and added to that, there were the distinguished rabbis who would travel through with an entourage. You knew when they were coming. And they would come in, and as they would walk, they would teach and talk. And people following around them, their disciples would listen to their every word. I mean, this was one exciting place. You could feel the electricity. 
And here was Jesus walking into the city at just the right time. We're told in verse 36 that there was a large crowd and that they were leaving the city. By the way, if you put all the stories together, you'll find out that what had just happened before they left the city is that a rich guy by the name of Zacchaeus just got saved. You read about it in Luke chapter 19. Jesus told his disciples it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. But he didn't say it was impossible. With man it is, but with God it isn't. And so here was a demonstration of his grace going out to a rich man. And now they're coming out of Jericho. And it was the best place for beggars to beg. They congregate on the most popular thoroughfares or intersections, just like they do today. But this beggar had a difficult situation, for he was blind. And his blindness had led to his poverty. We don't know all the details of it, but his situation was desperate. The darkness of his eyes led to the sadness, I'm sure, of his heart. And his life was rather miserable. But today was like almost any other day, except he knew there would be a great crowd, and he was hoping for perhaps some better gifts than normal. And so he got up and went to his corner with his tattered cloak and sat with the others and began to beg. I want you to notice, first of all, the request of this beggar. It's a very interesting request. It's actually a cry, isn't it? When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was coming, verse 47, he began to shout or to cry out loud, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We read in Luke's account that he heard the commotion of the crowd and turned to someone and said, what's happening? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And right away, we sense that this guy is very passionate about his condition, and it's evidenced in the cry, the shout. Jesus of Nazareth? By the way, that's not really a, a moniker of praise because Nazareth was a horrible town with a bad reputation. But Jesus was gaining a better reputation, and so it was almost a bit of an oxymoron to have someone so great coming from a place so poor. Jesus of Nazareth, have you heard of him? He's coming by. Has he heard of him? He begins to shout. J.C. Ryle said his blindness of his body did not depict the darkness of his soul. That somehow he understood his condition very well. And somehow he began to perceive that this Jesus could do something for his desperate condition. And so his cry is not only passionate, <clears throat> his cry shows a lot of perspective. His cry shows a lot of insight. It's a perceptive cry when he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now what does the cry son of David 
mean? Well, without going into a rather long study, we find out that it is a title that was given even from the Old Testament to the Messiah who would come because he would sit on the throne of David and he would come from the tribe of David and he would be, therefore, one of David's sons, one of his um, prodigies, one who came from his own tribe and family. It was a messianic term. However, it's interesting that Mark only uses it here. This is the only time he uses it. If you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find out that the most popular title given to Jesus Christ is this idea of Son of God because of his deity, emphasizing the fact that he is indeed the one sent of God. Matthew also uses Son of David quite a bit because he's talking to a Jewish crowd, but Mark is talking to a Roman crowd. And in Mark's mind, although Jesus is the son of David, that doesn't go quite far enough. Because some people who say that Jesus is Messiah do not take him as Lord and Savior. The Messiah, in the minds of some, was a military leader sent by God to deliver the Jews, and he would become a mighty political governor. But the idea of Savior from sin was not found in all of their definitions. But indeed, he is the son of David. It's interesting, talking about bookends, it's interesting that this title, son of David, is the very first title given to Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 at the beginning of the New Testament, and the very same title mentioned in the last chapter of the book of the Revelation, chapter 22 and verse 16. Because he'll come from the tribe of, tribe of David. He'll be the bright and morning star. And it's the book of Romans that gives us the beautiful picture that he's born of David according to the flesh, but declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit, the spirit of holiness. So what this beggar was saying is, yes, you're Jesus of Nazareth, but I've heard of you. And you are the Messiah. Now, where did he hear a story like that? From all the travelers that would come through the popular city of Jericho? And maybe it was a story that he recently heard. I told you that there was another uh, miracle like this back in chapter 8 when this section began. Jesus healed a blind man, and it would have been up the road a few miles but that would have traveled down to Jericho. And maybe he thought, if Jesus can heal that blind man, he can heal me as well. Because once you get a picture of Jesus changing someone else, your thought is, what about me? Whenever we get involved in a biography, there's a pull in that biography because that person's life story at points will be analogous to ours. And at some point, it will show what we can be or what we could experience just like they experienced. And biographies draw us in because we're broken with broken people and we rejoice and triumph with those who are victorious. 
So the Bible is filled with biographies so that your life can mesh with theirs. And that's the same thing with Bartimaeus. They mocked him, perhaps with the title Jesus of Nazareth. They praised him with the title Son of David. And the crowd around him was huge. And this blind man, having not seen him, he loved him and longed to be touched by him. So his cry was passionate because he was shouting. And it was a cry that was perceptive because he understood, at least to a certain degree, who Jesus was. But it was also a cry that was persistent. And I love the tenacity about this guy, don't you? He wouldn't stop. Verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Why? You're just a beggar. Jesus doesn't have time for you. He's got more important fish to fry. And maybe, like a rabbi, as he was walking, he was talking and he was interrupting the sermon. I would love to be interrupted in any sermon by a cry, what must I do to be saved? But you see, the leaders of this group, and I'm not exactly sure who the leaders are. I think it's Luke who tells us the leaders of the procession are the ones who rebuked him, and usually the leaders of the group are the disciples who were just told, take in children. Stop arguing between yourselves about who is the greatest and who's going to have position. Take in the helpless and the lowly, and what do they say? Stop your crying. Be quiet, they chided him. They rebuked him. Shut up, beggar. You keep crying. You'll need mercy. Threats and taunts and rebukes. But to a desperate man, he doesn't listen to the polls. He's not swayed by the crowd. Because the scripture says he just shouted all the more. That's like a helpless infant, right, who's crying for the bottle. And you tell the infant, please be quiet like they understand English. And nothing happens except if you don't respond, they cry all the louder. This is the same persistence that Jacob had when he was wrestling with the angel in Genesis chapter 32. And the angel said, let me go. And Jacob said, no way, until you bless me. For blind Bartimaeus must have thought, this may be my last chance. Jesus may not pass through here again. I may may never have this opportunity. And as long as he is in earshot, I'm going to make sure he hears me. Like Esther, if I perish, I perish. What are you going to do to me? I'm always already at the bottom of the earth, the bottom of the barrel, considered to be the worst of all people on planet earth. And so he kept shouting, All the more. What drive. What determination. You know, sometimes I think we make the gospel invitation a little too simple. Let me make it easy for you. (laughs) And I understand the motive behind it because we long to see people come to Christ. But you know, in the scriptures, those who really wanted Christ could not be stopped. When God convicts your soul of your need, when you really see you have a need, 
Nothing can stop you. You say, well, pastor, that's the problem. <laughs> I, I'm not like a beggar. I mean, I may not be rich, but I've got quite a bit in my checking account, and I can see. I don't have to sit on a corner and beg for bread. I'm not like this guy. Oh, yes, you are. <laughs> oh, maybe not physically, but spiritually. Because in this story, we're not just being shown the wonderful power of a merciful Savior who can heal the great miracles of Christ. We're getting a picture. We're getting, we're getting a revelation of the nature of humanity. This is a fit description of our nature, poor and blind and helpless. I once read about Charles Coulson who wrote of something he saw once in 60 Minutes that shook him to the core of his being. Of course, you know who Charles Coulson is now with the Lord, but had been the hatchet man in the Nixon administration and was accused in the Watergate hearings and sent to prison, became a Christian, and really got saved. You shouldn't have to say it that way, but there are some people who say they're saved, but they don't seem to really get saved. This guy really got saved. Life has changed. But he's watching 60 Minutes, and Mike Wallace is interviewing a survivor of the Holocaust. His name was Yehel Denur. And this man became one of the key witnesses as a survivor of the Holocaust and the concentration camp of Auschwitz. He became a key witness in the Nuremberg trials. And that's where Adolf Eichmann was brought in. And when this witness saw the man who tortured him 20 years before, he broke down and wept. He was inconsolable, and he fainted. Why? Because of the memories of seeing that man again? No. Was it because of the fear of seeing that man who tortured him and made his life miserable and almost brought him to death? No. This is what he said. I saw for the first time that Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who sent many to their deaths. He was an ordinary man like me, and I was afraid about myself. For if an ordinary man like me could do the things he did, I saw that I was capable in the same situation of doing the same thing. I wept and fainted because I saw that he was exactly like me. Wallace ended that interview with these chilling words, there's an Eichmann in every one of us. Colson used that story to reflect his own testimony. When I saw the sin of my heart, I was so ashamed. When I saw my rebellion and pride and arrogance, I felt myself undone and helpless, and I looked for a place to hide. You say you're not that bad? Look at how glorious God is, how righteous God is, and then ask him to let you see in the depths of your soul. And you will cry out devastated because this blind man is a fit picture of you and me. 
So he cried in persistence. There's a verse that it's always been difficult to interpret. And I know when I first saw it, and at times have struggled over the years with Matthew 11 and verse 12 that says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? Well, sometimes the translation can hinder our understanding of it and sometimes another translation or a good paraphrase or commentary can help us better understand it. Someone translated it like this. The kingdom of heaven has been forcibly advancing and those who are aggressive or forceful grab onto it and won't let it go. Spiritual blessings belong to those who get aggressive to find Christ. It's the very thing that Pastor Doug read a moment ago from Matthew chapter five. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Maybe you're not hungry yet. Maybe the things of this world still satisfy you and there's no desperation in your soul and there's no need for a savior. That's the way a lot of people are in this world. They think everything is okay. Jesus said, when I came, I didn't come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. If everything is okay, I'm a physician for the sick. Until you know you're sick, you'll never cry out for the doctor. But when you're sick, I'm one of the biggest babies in the world when I'm sick. And I'll cry out until that doctor is found. And so it is in the spiritual realm. And that's what you have here. So this is a fit description of us. Now, notice how Jesus responds. Get the picture? The city is overpacked with people. And one beggar has been crying so loud that he's interrupting the message. Or at least someone listening to their rabbi. And they tell him to be quiet, and he only gets more loud. He gets louder, obstinate. In verse 49, Jesus stops. He says, Call him. So they call the blind man and they say, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Now, I don't know if this is the same people that are rebuking him, but if it is, I think they probably didn't say this in a real positive way. You know, they're a little bit put out. Hey, cheer up. I wouldn't have done it, but he's calling you. Get on your feet. You know, that kind of thing. Stop your bellowing and come and talk to the Savior. Verse 50, and throwing his cloak aside. By the way, Mark gives more details than the other two gospel writers do on this particular story. Rather fascinating. And this is one of them. He threw his cloak aside. It probably was a tattered cloak. It was probably a very old, greasy cloak. But that's all he had. It was his bedroll at night. And he cast it aside like, I'm not going to need this anymore. The rich man who earlier in chapter 10 of Mark would not give up all his good things to find life in Christ is compared to this man who's willing to give up everything. You say, but it's not much. Oh, what you have is much? What you have is valuable? More valuable than knowing the God who made you? 
He threw the cloak aside. He jumped to his feet, maybe with some help, and he came to Jesus. Now, notice the response of the Savior. First of all, he is amazingly compassionate. He had just been teaching his disciples, I came not to be served, but to serve. If you're marching through a big city with a huge crowd following you and everyone fawning over you and doing everything they can because they think you're the next king, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. He stops and reaches out to this beggar. And instead of teaching them what he taught them earlier, he now demonstrates what it is to be a servant, a far more powerful lesson. And he speaks personally to this guy's heart. He's not only compassionate and being concerned about him, but he stops, and this man is called to Jesus. No one else was. And now it's a one-on-one with Jesus Christ. And he asks him a personal question. What do you want me to do for you? You say, that's a pretty dumb question, isn't it? You're afraid to say that because Jesus asked it, but I know you're thinking that. He already knows what he wants. Or I mean, what do you think a blind man would want, right? Seems like a dumb question. It's a very accurate question. He called him son of David. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and most of the people in the crowd think he's going to set up his kingdom, and even his disciples want position in the kingdom. What do you want me to do for you? What if blind Bartimaeus would have said, you know, when you get your kingdom established, I hope you'll have some programs for the blind, affordable housing, maybe some vouchers for education. Get us off the street. Will you help us? What do you want me to do for you? Just a better physical life would be good. Could have said that. No. He saw deeper. What do you want me to do for you? And this is what the blind men said. Rabboni. This is found only twice in the Gospels. The other time is Mary when she sees the resurrected Christ for the first time. Rabboni. It's a term of endearment that means Lord and Master. If Son of David is an acknowledgement of his title and his position as Messiah, Rabboni means you are my Master. It's a statement of personal faith. I want to see. Now that takes faith. I want you to give me sight. And I'm sure a few people rolled their eyes, not only when Jesus stopped to talk, but when this man made the request. But Jesus says in verse 42, your faith has healed you. So this personal encounter that Jesus has ends up in a powerful result. The man is immediately changed. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. Is this story just here for Bartimaeus? Is it just a first century story of the amazing power of Jesus Christ? Is it just to remind us that 
His power is merciful, not just unlimited. Might and mercy joined together in the person of Jesus Christ. No, this is a story for us today that shows our faith in Christ results in forgiveness and healing. It was the faith. This is the same thing that Jesus said to the woman back in Mark chapter five, your faith, woman, brings healing to you. It was the same thing said to the friends of the paralytic in chapter two, your faith is gonna make this guy whole, and his faith as well. Our faith doesn't save us, but it's our faith that connects us with the one who saves. And it's only faith, and you must exercise faith. It's only faith that connects us with the mighty, awesome power of Jesus Christ. And I like what it says in verse 52. When he received his sight, he followed Jesus on the way. There's no better description of what it is to be a disciple than right here. Follow Jesus on the road of life. (laughs) And I think he must have been a real pain for a while. Look at that tree over there. Are those leaves? Wow, there's Harry. I thought he was better looking than that, you know? All, everything was new to him. Everything was exciting to him. But he was with Jesus, tracking him step by step. And that's what a disciple does. Scholars tell us that Mark preserved all the details that some of the other gospel writers didn't because this man was known to his audience as one of the stalwart Christians in the church of that day. Why, if he followed Jesus to Jerusalem, that means he saw the triumphal entry. Might have been a witness to the crucifixion. And one of the early ones to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And then boldly live his life in faith with Christ. I simply want us to understand that this is a story, yes, to teach us that the power of Jesus is merciful, that he's compassionate, that he wants personally to change your life, and he has the power to do it. But I want you to understand that you and I need to cry out in faith, Rabboni, and embrace him with all of our hearts. And remember this, the one who now dwells in heaven itself Surrounded by the cries of angels praising him, saying, holy, 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 still stops and listens to the cry of any beggar on earth who says, I want to see. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you are passing by this very place this morning. You are passing by and you long to touch the soul that cries out, save me. I would imagine, Lord, that most people here have trusted you as Lord and Savior. And if they have, make them followers of the way. Let them leave everything to make Jesus everything. Speak to their hearts about being a disciple like Bartimaeus became. And then for those who may be here this morning, Lord, who've never put their faith and trust in you, 
Lord, I pray that even right now they will cry out, Lord, save me. We know that any person who cries from an honest heart will get an immediate response from heaven. For it's not the words we say, but the attitude of the heart that God Almighty sees. And no prayer reaches God's heart that doesn't come from ours. Lord, in the quietness of this moment, may some people here today who are hurting and helpless, they know they're spiritually blind and desperate like Bartimaeus was. May they cry out and find immediate healing in the merciful Son of God, Son of David, Son of Man, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.